Deliciously, we will be talking about The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste, the fourth studio album by Ministry. It was released on November 14, 1989 by Sire Records and was produced by Hypoluxa and Hermes Pan. The music took a more hardcore, aggressively guitar-driven direction than previous releases. It was certified gold in 1995. Waxing the other track is a Polish-American writer and teacher, Max Wozniak. Max, how you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Derek. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you uh, coming on the show to uh, to do this. We kind of got everything done last minute, and it's always uh, it's always fun when it when it works out and everybody's in the same place yeah. at the same time. So, Max, tell me, uh, how did this album enter your life? Oh man, um, so kind of just to summarize, I I, I was a, a child of the '80s. Um, I would say that synth pop was the sort of uh, prevalent type of music. I mean, it was certainly um, what I heard most on the radio. Um, so I wasn't, so, you know, kind of like artificial sound set synthesizers were, uh, um, certainly not foreign elements to my ears, but, um, you know, they were relatively digestible by comparison. If we're talking about this particular album, uh, it wasn't until I was, and I liked the the majority of the stuff I was hearing. Some of it was fairly trite and kind of, um, you know, just light and loafers. But I did like like Depeche Mode and uh, things of that nature, like Ultravox and even Visage. Uh, even as a, you know, like super young kid, I still had an appreciation for that stuff. Maybe not on like an intellectual level. It just it pleased my ears. But um at one point when I was 11, I heard Skinny Puppy and uh, an older friend of mine actually introduced me to them. And at the time I was uh, ill prepared for the uh, kind of sonic onslaught <laughs> that I was hearing. Um, decidedly abrasive. Um, I didn't know what to make of it. It obviously had elements of synth pop, but they were just mangled. And um, it was just considerably, just, if anything, it was too abstract to these ears. Um, and I remember going, so fast forward a little bit, I'm probably 13 on the, on the brink of turning 14. And I mosey on in at Tower Records in Seattle. And I asked the person, keep in mind, this is before, like I actually had to rely on, you know, printed like, like press, like magazines, to, like read reviews just to get like a, a sort of, um, an overview of an album um, and I relied on descriptions. I know this is such a foreign concept to maybe some of the people who will be listening, but um, anyways, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I approached the counter. I had a copy of with sympathy, which was their, their, their first um, full length, like their debut. They came out on Arista and the guy at the counter said, uh, don't mess with that. So, Went back into the section where the album was located, and he uh, picked out "Mind Is a Terrible Thing to Taste." And um, I asked him, you know, like just by comparison, like what he would liken it to, and he said the mission, the mission UK of all bands. So I was kind of trepidatious because um, I had heard the mission and wasn't terribly keen on him. But um, anyways, just just bought it. Just bought it. Just had a hunch it would be good. I really like the cover art with the X-rayed skull, and I like the font, the typeface, and um, I knew there was some um, 
like involvement um, that Al Jurgensen had with Skinny Puppy. He had produced um, their Rabies album around the same time this album came out, actually. They were probably separated by just a few months. And that album, in comparison, was more palatable. So I was like, okay, I'll, I'll get into this. And uh, I listened to it in my friend's car. We were both uh, there, and he put it in his uh, you know, uh, CD player. And I was just, it was just a kick in the sternum right from the get-go. Um, I had never heard anything like it. Uh, incorporated elements of, um, like I said, Skinny Puppy and uh, things like that. It was just considerably more palatable because at the time I was really heavily into uh, American hardcore music, um, metal, um, all the like, different subgenres of metal. So this was like a good sort of bridging the gap um, of what I would describe as like post-industrial music and uh, something that was decidedly more guitar driven. So that was, uh, that was my exposure. I can't remember exactly who introduced this to me. Uh, so I heard this for the first time when I was in high school, uh, probably right around just a little bit after it came out. I'm, I'm assuming I heard it sometime in 1990 and then this came out in you know late 1989, and at the time I had been listening almost exclusively to heavy metal. Yeah, and I no. was starting to yeah <laughs> I was starting to branch out a little bit. Somebody had given me uh, my buddy Steve, who was on an earlier episode, uh, and I know he does listen to the show. So hi, Steve. Uh, had given me a, a copy of Jane's Addiction's Nothing Shocking. Great album. And, oh yeah. And that led me to start listening to a bunch of different things. And I consider three, uh, my three big albums from the, uh, let's say, genre of heavy but not metal that got me started listening to a lot of different things was uh, the Jane's Addiction, uh, Faith No More is the Real Thing, and Ministries, The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste, so this album right here. And I remember going to a record store with a buddy of mine, and I think we must have heard this song, uh, must have heard one of the songs somewhere, uh, maybe at a dance club, I would, if I was... 18 if i had then it was a little bit later but we would have heard uh something and i remember i picked up a, an album and my buddy bought this album and we got back and i didn't like the album that i bought and he didn't really like this one so we switched <laughs> <laughs> uh and that's how i ended up with this one and i i can't remember the album that i bought but uh this ended up becoming mine and uh i remember going off to to university so my freshman year of ha i had i found postcards of those three albums that i just talked about and those were taped up in my room for a long time and um, I never really got into industrial metal outside of this band for the most part. There's been a couple of things, but I remember picking up, uh, so I thought, ah, oh, maybe this is something that I'll like and listening to Skinny Puppy, uh, Too Dark Park, which at yeah. the time just didn't do a whole lot for me. And I think that's one of those I probably need to revisit, but, uh, this was just a band that I really dove right into and the following release was great. And, uh, went back a little bit. So I, I bought uh, The Land of Rape and Honey, which was sort of that, that bridged the gap a little Absolutely. bit between what what the band was earlier, like the one that you almost bought, uh, and then uh, what they would end up becoming. Uh, so, the, you know, I think which this was the first time this was fully formed. What people think of ministry starts with this album is, is what I think. 
so yeah, so that's how somebody either recommended it or we heard one song somewhere and picked it up. And uh, I've been a fan of this band uh, for at least for a while. So I, I kind of dropped out with them around Dark Side of the Spoon. Yeah, um, clever title. Didn't do much. <laughs> they, he makes great album titles. I, my, he's like my my favorite live album title is "In Case You Didn't Feel Like Showing Up," Definitely. which is such a great title for an album uh, for a live record. Uh, but yeah, and then at that point, I was just onto onto different things. But uh, I still have a, a special a special place in my heart for this album. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna go ahead and get started here with our track by track analysis. Do it. Uh, yeah. So this season, been playing around with the album openers, that opening track, uh, which we have the call to action, the blueprint, the setup, and the teaser. Uh, so track number one is thieves, and this is a call to action. This song kicks so much ass that anytime I hear it, I walk around with a footprint on my butt for the rest of the day. It is so fucking good. I love this song so much. And it's just out of the gate. I mean, a case could be made for a blueprint by this, but it's just so you can see them opening up. This is how, this is how you open up an album. Just it, if you went right from, from sympathy or even the land rape and honey, you're like, nope, this is going to be a different experience. And you can tell the influence of hardcore metal that he had because the guitars just are uh, are different uh, than what he had been doing in the past. And uh, the I want to say the summer of 91 or 92, I can't quite remember, I, I had been playing floor hockey. Uh, so I never learned how to ice skate. I grew up in Florida. Um, so we would play hockey on tennis courts, essentially, on our in our, in our sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and before uh, the game, I would listen to this song to get hyped up. So this was my let's get going because it's just this this song rocks. It's just it thrashes out. Plus, it also has the the samples, yeah. which at the time was a bit of a, a different take. And I think it was something that was happening in this particular genre. So I think if you were listening to industrial type stuff, that was probably not unusual. But, uh, you know, listening to, let's say, more standard metal or even uh, thrash metal, this was a little, this was something different to hear samples coming from, you know, Full Metal Jacket and yes. a few other things. So Rubble just, uh, yeah. <laughs> so this is just, this is such a great way to open up a record. This is such a great song. Uh, Max, what do you think about this one? Immediately, I mean, it's chronologically, it's the first uh, track on the album. I heard it and it was a kick to the sternum, uh, especially once the chorus kicks in. Um, it just, it, it, it's a juggernaut of a song. Um, I had never heard anything like it. I mean, it was to some extent redolent of speed metal, but at the same time, the tempo, there was something off about it. Um, it, it had this almost like feeling of, you know, I could describe it as a feeling of like forward propulsion. Like the song was just um, this juggernaut, like I said, that just wouldn't stop. A funny little anecdote about the song itself. Apparently, they had recorded the album in earnest. They had it lock, stock, and barrel. And the only thing that the album didn't have was Thieves. Um, Al Jurgensen um, deemed it deemed the rest of the album uh, to be, in his words, sort of it felt resigned. It, it was aggressive enough, but um, they needed something. Something was lacking. So... Um, legend has it that they wrote and recorded Thieves um, in about two hours. 
Hmm. And uh, yeah, just made the album. Otherwise, it would have been the album itself would have been truncated to eight tracks. Um, granted, um, there, there, there's a few bangers on this album, but Thieves really just sets the uh, really sets the stage. Um, just amazing, just 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 phenomenal. Uh, similar similar uh, sort of feelings. I mean, I I, I definitely. Uh, it's funny that you pre-funk with the song uh, before playing hockey. Uh, to me, it just yeah, it evokes the same. It's just it's a pure adrenaline. It's like a main line of adrenaline. And yeah, it, it's a phenomenal song. I, I I can't imagine this album had they excised it or never recorded it. I can't imagine the album um, just existing without thieves as the opener yeah that's i'd never heard that before that that this was such a, a late edition that it was i i don't know why i yeah i'm not quite sure why they thought the album was resigned you've got like burning inside there's there's a few uh you know pretty hefty tracks on there um but they just they needed that and uh apparently just even even in the making of the album um between paul barker and al jurgensen they described it um as being fairly chaotic um and there's a lot of just uh, mayhem, um, debauchery, whatnot, uh, sort of in the making of the album. You really don't hear it. It, it does have a very fine-tuned sort of precision to it. Um, they were still using the Fairlight sampler, uh, which was one of the first samplers introduced um, at the time of um, when it was launched. It was probably, I think it cost like $20,000, maybe more, maybe forty. Um, and it, it wasn't a portable sampler like you would think of, like an MPC. Uh, it was literally the size of a mixing console. And uh, by their own admission, they didn't really know how to use it. <laughs> and by today's standards, it certainly had its limitations. But hey, it had like a, a peripheral that allowed you to use a stylus. And this was like, they, they had the thing since like 1984. So I think in some ways... Um, the, the limitations of the machine itself, because it relies so heavily on samples, the album and the song too, um, kind of makes it what it is. Um, they didn't have this kind of uh, um, almost limitless playground of sound and sound palettes to kind of play around with. And I think to some extent it, it, it sort of, uh, it imbues it with a sense of like restraint and maybe... Um, it's it just yeah i mean i think that's why it's just so to the point and yet sound wise so expansive yeah yeah all that and uh, we're gonna go ahead and move on to track two burning inside what are your thoughts on this one max again another it's it's just like instantly right after thieves you get hit with that more of a build-up at the time uh, the lineup consisted of so many different uh, personnel um but at the heart of it um, was obviously Paul Barker, which I would consider to be not just Al Jurgensen's right hand, but without the addition of Paul, um, I think Ministry would have been a considerably different band. He had heard the Blackouts, which were they were a Seattle band that consisted of uh, Paul Barker, uh, Bill, Bill Rieflin, which obviously he wound up being in Ministry as well. And I think um, them meeting um, kind of set the, uh, the template for what ministry would sound like. And again, you mentioned uh, Land of Rape and Honey and the album preceding it, Twitch, um, which was decidedly uh, more on the sort of ag like agro-electro-industrial side. 
But it wasn't until Land of Rape and Honey that they started to really um, employ the use of guitars and um, the, the, the band, the sound of the band started taking on a different shape altogether. But Burning Inside, um, I think uncredited, but still on the track is Martin Atkins uh, from Killing Joke. He's certainly featured in the video and um, even the, the live show you mentioned, which came out on VHS at the time called, uh, um, what is it, um, in case you don't feel like showing up live. Um, yeah, it's just uh, another banger. I would say the uh, the guitars are kind of remind me of uh, a band that I was fond of at the time, Killing Joke. They have a certain uh, nighttime sort of flair to them. Uh, I think uh, Al Jurgensen might have cribbed or taken a few nods from Killing Joke for sure. By his own admission, by the way. So yeah, just amazing song. More of just like a just a absolute burner that one, very much in line with Thieves. It keeps that pace going, and like I said, it has a little bit of the uh, intro there with uh, what sounds like a siren going yeah. on, uh, and then but boy, once that rhythm kicks in, I mean, this is a uh, this is another good one, uh, and one that I think uh, I must have heard many times at a, at this particular dance club we went to, this alternative dance club we went to when I was eighteen. I really love this song and it's like anything like that opening track doesn't always tell you what you're going to get because it can sometimes be a little misleading. They're like, ah, oh, that was great. And then the rest of the album is like, yeah, that's not Filler. so great. Uh, but then you know, when you follow up Thieves with Burning Inside, it's like, okay, this is a ride. Let's buckle up because we're going to have some fun. Uh, this is another, yeah, like you said, another bang, another great song. I could see this one. Uh, I wonder if this was initially track one. Um, it would have been. They had it would have been. That you mentioned. Yeah. So I don't know if they resequenced the whole thing after coming up with Thieves, but this would have made, I think this would have made a fine track one, to be honest, especially with that siren. And the lead. Uh, slow, yeah. You know, so, yeah. And, the, and I just, I really love the, the rhythm on this one. Just the, this is when they get you going. Moving on to uh, track three, Never Believe. Uh, and it just it keeps going. So a lot of times uh, I've been finding that your track three is when you slow down a little bit. A lot of bands, even heavier bands, sometimes if you're going to throw in something that's a little more mid-tempo, they're going to go with track three. Not here. <laughs> uh, Never Believe just keeps it up. Boy, these three opening tracks, uh, it's just there's no let up. You're just, it's just like go, 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 go. And uh, I don't have a ton to say about Never Believe because it's, it's it it does let off a little bit like it doesn't reach the heights because those first two songs are just absolute classics. And if you're gonna if you're gonna make a, a mixtape of ministry tunes, those two are gonna show up on there. And while Never Believe is is really good, it doesn't quite live up to those first two because not a lot of things do. What do you think about this one? Most notably, I would say that. Um it, it, it's the first song to have Chris Conley on lead vocals. Chris Conley came into the ministry fold somewhere around uh, Land of Rape and Honey, right? Like during the making of Land of Rape and Honey. Uh, Chris Conley was in uh, Chicago. He was trying to, he was shopping around his band's um, album. Um, his band was called Fade Tribe at the time. And just by happenstance, Al Jurgensen saw Chris Conley outside of, um, I think it was Track Studios. Or maybe it was even the uh, brick and mortar. Maybe I think uh, it might have been the wax track store itself in Chicago. And just kind of, uh, it, it was just this strange solicitation like, hey, do you want to run errands with me today? And those errands consisted of um, 
you know, procuring narcotics just to go back into the studio and start recording. <laughs> but immediately he, pro- he, he, he propositioned him to, to, to do vocals with like not even on the strength of having heard Vinny Tribe. Um, Chris Conley's an interesting singer, uh, Scottish. Um, when I was, when I first heard this album, I, you know, the, the one, some kind of common thread between Al Jurgensen's vocals and Chris Conley's vocals is that there's a smattering of distortion on both. But, um, obviously in retrospect, I, I know the difference. Um, but yeah, first song to feature Chris Conley on this album on Land of Rape and Honey, he was, uh, credited as lead vocals on, uh, you know what you are. And I prefer tempo wise, a little bit different, but still incredibly ferocious. Without a doubt. All right. So then track four, Cannibal Song. Uh, what do you think about this one? <laughs> well, perfect. The, this is the perfect track because uh, it just lets up. It does let up. Uh, there's a bit of a, it kind of gives you a respite from the uh, the onslaught of the previous three songs. Um, beautiful song, uh, samples uh, Hellraiser, Hellbound. Um, the second Hellraiser uh, film, there's a there's that little uh, the mind sample. Uh, mm-hmm. There's you can hear crows. There's an abundance of crow sounds in the track. Um, that's another thing is just kind of digging back uh, in, in into their catalog and kind of like uh, identifying where the samples are from. Like we talked about, uh, you mentioned uh, Thieves had uh, most notably sampled Full Metal Jacket. Uh, Robocop. Um, there seems to be this sort of underlying theme, and, and I think Al Jurgensen really hearts uh, the works of uh, Stanley Kubrick and uh, even Paul Verhoeven, obviously. There's kind of an ode to Robocop, the mechanistic sounds and whatnot. Not in this song in particular, but fantastic song. Definitely a nice breather song, uh, but still very dark um, and certainly very impactful as well. Yeah, dark is a good word for this one, and and it finally does slow down after those first three, just all gas. Uh, this one pulls it back just a little bit, without losing any of the intensity. And I love the bass on this one. I mean, it's not a complicated bass line, but it's just it's there and it's loud. And uh, for me, this is the only note I really have on this is goth girls dancing slow. Yeah. Well, there's so much crossover. It doesn't surprise me that you would have heard this in a dance club or either other tracks. I mean, it, the band definitely crossed over. They were really hard to pin down. I remember at the time, there was so many different types of like genre tags being ascribed to them, whether it was like cyber metal or post-industrial metal, because it doesn't really bear that much similarity to what I consider to be like industrial music industrial music to me is like i should send the neubauten or like throbbing gristle which basically they, they single-handedly coined the term industrial so definitely a bit divorced from the origins of that music and, and somewhat streamlined but certainly just as um adventurous and, and and definitely intent on subverting people's expectations but yeah I've always subscribed this as industrial metal. So I think to differentiate it from those earlier bands, especially Throbbing Gristle, which you know I think are considered kind of the granddaddies yep. of that genre. And uh, just with the introduction of metal style guitar is really what set Ministry apart, I think, um, at that time. Obviously, you know, a million people ended up doing it uh, as well because it was obviously it was viable. <laughs> 
But yeah, so this is the one where it kind of slows down and it just has that killer. But you know, this one almost flirts more with, like with post punk, mm-hmm. uh, just because because of the tempo and because of the baseline and um, and this, the samples in here are, are used differently than on Thieves. Uh, so this is like you said with the crow sounds, I think is the most um, overt of them. And yeah, so like I said, there was this alternative dance club called 701 that we would go to. And that's where I heard you know, Faith No More, uh, We Care A Lot for the first time and uh, had like a hole from Nine Inch Nails and uh, that kind of music. So this was, uh, you know, early 90s, uh, heavy, dancey alternative. And it was, uh, it was some cool stuff. And I, I, I learned, uh, I, I picked up a, a lot of different things from, from going there when I was, you know, 18 or yeah. 19. Uh, even later and but this is just one that, that when i hear just the way the bass line and the way the vocals because the vocals are a little more high pitched as opposed to the the growling or the barking that we had heard to this point uh, a little more ethereal is the first thing that comes to mind even though that's not the right word because they're they're a little more solid than that but you know i just you know i can see these these you know women dressed in black dancing slow Definitely invokes that vibe. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's a, that, that's one that really just brings me back to that particular era. Even though I listen to other songs more when I when I was preparing for the podcast, when I heard that one, that's that for whatever reason that really jolted me back. But unlike uh, track five, "Breathe," uh, that kicks it right back up, and uh, so this is a little more. So maybe not quite as uh, uh, as high tempo as the the first three, but definitely a step back up from "Cannibal Song." It doesn't have a ton of lyrics in it, but just that, you know, the breathe, breathe you fucker. There's a, des- there's a desperation to it that I like. And it's there. This is a kind of, this is a pretty powerful song. And I'm, a, I'm a big fan of this one. So like this first half, let's say is just unassailable. I mean, this just goes and this is another, this is another great song, uh, in, you know, the fifth great song in a row. Uh, what do you think about this one? Breathe. Um, Again, reincorporating just Al Jurgensen, uh, his vocals at the forefront. Uh, it's a little bit more plotting uh, thematically. It's very sociopolitical. Um, you know, as serious as the band is, there's always been uh, this sort of underlying humor, especially in the uh, album titles. And that, 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 that gets me kind of like, I, I think at this point in the album, I'm like, I have to seek out everything this band's ever done. <laughs> and I mean, granted, there, there was such a huge like it, it was part of this aggregate, this axis almost of like uh, like-minded musicians. There were so many side projects um, that came out around this time because there were so many albums that were, or rather, songs that were intended to be ministry songs. But then um, it was just a very fruitful period. So he just, uh, uh, you know, this is almost ministry-esque. But let's let's uh, you know, we'll make this a revolting cock song, which was another. Uh, Al Jurgensen, uh, Paul Barker's side project. And then there was like PTP and Palehead, which he had done with uh, Ian Mackay from Fugazi. There's so much. There was such a wellspring of music coming out around this time. There was also what? Uh, Pigface. Yeah, Pigface, Acid Horse, Lard, which was basically ministry fronted by Jello Biafra. Um, oh, that was good stuff. Yeah. Uh, 1000 Homo DJs. 1000 Homo DJs, absolutely. Uh, yeah, it was so much. He was incredibly prolific around this time. Um, but um, yeah, the song itself, again, just just phenomenal. And um, honestly, just, just, you know, like midway through this album, I'm like, okay. So I had a backtrack and I'm just listening to Breathe. 
Um, I'm like, you know, I distinctly remember this band being associated with Wax Tracks. And lo and behold, they had released their first singles on the Wax Tracks before they signed to Arista. Um, and then that, that snowballed into me just getting everything the label uh, would put out because it was all very like-minded. Uh, the bands weren't clones by any means, but there was a, there was a very, um, there, there, there seemed to be some commonality, um, aesthetically, uh, musically, um, they just kind of, yeah, like everything just, uh, it, it definitely set me on that, on a, on a very specific trajectory. And, uh, <laughs> moreover, the label kind of specialized, I would say, in electro and like EBM and the more, uh, less guitar driven um, sides of, of post industrial music. So, uh, amazing song. And uh, again, a ma- huge game changer because that just got me into all the other side projects and all the other bands that was sort of part of the Aldrigan and Paul Barker aggregate, as it were. Yeah, and that was seemed to be the thing with Wax Tracks is they didn't have so much like a house sound. Like a lot of the indie labels would have that. Because they may only have one or two producers that they were using, or they had a specific aesthetic, and this seemed to be more of a uh, thematically they were they were kind of on the same page without necessarily being sonically on the same page. Right. Uh, even though I think all these uh, let's say ministry side projects, Al Jorgensen side projects, did have um, well, because it was centered around his voice and his let's say guitar or whatever uh, that they did have. It, I think you can, if you were into it, you could probably hear the difference. But but if you just randomly heard a Revco or a Palehead or something, that's uh, you may not necessarily know which one was which. But that brings us to the uh, end of side one of Ministries: The Mind Is a Terrible Thing to Taste. Here on I fucking love this record with me, Derek Caraview, and my guest today, Max Wozniak. So Max, so tell me how uh, how's everything going for you, my friend? Good, good. Just uh, keeping myself busy. At this point, teaching, um, taking on other prospects uh, that are kind of like looming on the horizon. Yeah, I've got really nothing to plug <laughs> except uh, maybe if I were if I were to plug anything, it's like, hey, I'm available for uh, English uh, tutoring. Or if anyone has any good job leads, that uh, definitely, um, I guess, would secure like a, a contract job. Other than that, everything's going really great. So any of my uh, Vroswav listeners out there, if you have a, a job for Max, uh, yeah, hit me up. Let me know. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, that's, uh, so you were originally born in Poland, but you grew up in the States, right? You had mentioned Seattle earlier. So um, I, I, I mean, I left. My mom <laughs> moved uh, to the United States with me until when I was about six years old. Spent my entire life in the United States. Uh, this makes my... This makes it my fourth time in Poland, obviously my longest. I've been here for over two years now. Prior to that, um, I'd visited for a couple weeks here and there. But And yes, Seattle would uh, definitely qualify as the city I grew up in and its surrounding suburbs. Um, again, probably being a skate rat and growing up in, sub, in, in the suburbs, um, I use music as a form of escapism more so than anything else, so... And that's that's kind of where this album has a special place in my heart because uh, if it wasn't for the uh, addition of say like Paul Barker or Bill Rieflin who were both Seattleites, it's uh, who knows where Ministry would have uh, they might have still been trying to trying to trying to sell their you know 
lighten the loafers like synth pop <laughs> to this day. Probably not. But. You know, he could still be, you know, he, he could still be singing with a fake English accent, trying to sound like an American version exactly of the uh, British accent. <laughs> sound yeah. like Depeche Mode. Which, according to him, Arista put him up to that. They kind of wanted, they sort of wanted a surrogate. On, they wanted him to be like a surrogate for Howard Jones, <laughs> for Arista, because Howard Jones was huge in 1983, and, and they were kind of molding him into that. Gal Jorgensen said it best. He was like, we sold out before we ever, well, before we even had a chance to sell out, I mean, right, right out of the gate, we sold out. So they kind of did the. Uh, he dis- he disavows that first record, depending on when you talk to him. I know, but so. Uh, true. Very true. Well, let's go ahead and uh, take a look at the second side of this record. We're gonna start with uh, you talking about. So what? What do you think about this one? So what is absolutely hands down my favorite song on the album. Um, the live version. Uh, on uh in case you don't feel like showing up live um the sort of companion video um live video um for this particular album this particular tour um it's amazing uh you want to talk about a juggernaut i mean there were at, at that point the band consisted live anyways consisted of like upwards of like a dozen people martin atkins from killing joke um chris conley uh nivik ogre from skinny puppy Paul Barker, uh, William Tucker, Jeff Ward. Uh, yeah, members from like the UK subs, Killing Joke, uh, Jello Biafra. It was, uh, it, it was basically like a veritable circus of uh, sort of industrial and punk luminaries. Um, so what features, I guess the sort of just Al Jurgensen and Chris Conley almost trading off. It's hard to distinguish who's who in the track just because their voices are both um, um, slightly distorted. Uh, brilliant track. Um, say the verses are danceable just because it does almost have like a four on the floor type of like thump to it. And um, the choruses are decidedly more scathing and uh, just kind of just very guitar driven. Um Basically, just like not not just the best song on this album, just hands down my favorite ministry song. Oh, wow! Okay, I know, big claim there. <laughs> no, no, this is this is a is a great tune, and and you've brought up a, a couple of times that live album, which isn't even very long. I think it's only what seven eight tracks. Uh, at least mm-hmm. like, I don't know if they've ever released maybe an expanded version of that, but. And what a great live record that is! I love that record because it is just Terrible. barely contained chaos. And I, my favorite thing on that, this comes close, but my favorite thing on that is the live version of Stigmata, because you know, yeah. Stigmata, which was yeah. on the Land of Rape and Honey, is is good uh, on that album, and it's fucking great on the live album because it with the live guitar just brings that song to another level, and that whole rant at the end is yeah. just so fucking great. Uh, if you have not already, guys, go ahead and check that one out. That's a fantastic live album. That's mainly just tracks from this album and Land of Rape and Honey. I don't remember if there's anything else on that. It's been a long time since I've listened to it, but it's really, really good. Yeah, Land of Rape and Honey is on it, but they, for some reason, excised it on the uh, the CD pressing. Uh, it does exist in its entirety on the actual VHS. Um and another side note about that. Yeah, please, anyone listening, do yourself a favor and actually watch it because it's a visual feast too. Just, again, like you said, Derek, super chaotic. Um, 
I mean, to the point where they actually had to play behind a chain link fence because their crowds were so fucking unruly <laughs> and would uh, typically um, throw bottles <laughs> at them. Um, yeah, man, that that's just it's, it's yeah. Phenomenal. Did you ever see them live? I did. I was actually going to say that uh, I, I wish I would have seen them live during this particular run, but it wasn't until um, Psalm 69 came out that I saw them twice. One, um, at the 92 Lollapalooza, and then at um, uh, the Kirina in Seattle uh, with uh, Opener's Helmet and Sepultura, and this was around like 1992. Yeah, I saw them at uh, that Lollapalooza in Orlando that, uh, that same year, and I think I saw them one oh, other man. time, and yeah. it was, oh god, it was so good. And even his, the the Lollapalooza shows were more of like an event than a music thing. It feels like you know, like and seeing it in Florida was more of like survival, because <laughs> yeah. it was all, all day outside in the summer in Florida. I was like, yeah, this is the brilliant idea. But it, they were god, they were so good, and there was just so much going on. And anyway, I'm not can't remember I. If I saw them any other times than that one, I definitely saw that one, and I I want to say I saw them once in a like a more standard place you would expect to see ministry as opposed to you know outdoors at six o'clock in the afternoon. But yeah, I subsequently saw them on the Phil Pig tour, and that was the uh, the third and final time I I saw ministry. Um, and um, th- th- there was a certain I, I like that album. Uh, we're not really talking about that album right now, but um, at that point, um, my interest in the band waned a bit. I'm not gonna lie. That this um, it's funny because when 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 you f- when I first expressed interest in doing this podcast, um, and you asked me if I wanted to, um, I accepted excitedly. Um, but I was just trying to think of albums that were real game changers in my life, but also game changers in their respective genres too. I mean, uh, like you said even earlier in the podcast. Um, you know, the, the, this album changed, I mean, a, like a lot, uh, and, and certainly sparked a great deal of imitators. Some good, some bad, some had their own takes on um, the, this kind of trademarked sound. Um, but yeah, the, the impression was definitely made. So when sussing out, you know, a band and their best album, it's, it's oftentimes difficult, but... Um, yeah, this album is definitely – this was a, like an easy pick for me for sure. Yeah, this was not on my uh, original list on my wish list. But as soon as you brought that up, I was like, yes. Because it was – I think we had it narrowed down to two. And on my way home, I put this one on first and I'm like – and I it had been a while since I'd listened to it. And that first jolt from Thieves, I was like, oh, yeah, this is the fucking album we're doing. <laughs> well, man, it still sounds fresh. I don't know what yeah, it is. Uh, I think because it, it almost single-handedly creates a sub-genre and sometimes uh, – Exactly. And I think part of – like I had mentioned before, I didn't really get too deep into this sub-genre. So it still definitely feels fresh for me because I didn't hear 10,000 other people do it to lesser effect. Uh, and so that helps me out because I know if people were into it or if that's if that's your gig, that's cool because there's a lot of good stuff out there. Uh, but I think part of it just stays fresh for me because this exists kind of on its own for me in a lot of ways. But yeah, and this is such a great song. Um, and then we're going to move on to track seven, Test. Uh, and this is probably the only this this lets down just a little bit, but it's still good. And it's kind of, it's just something about the way he just like the vocal on this is a test and it's, it's kind of silly. And then the music kicks in and it's a, 
it's slightly different than what we've been hearing. And it's not, let's say, down tempo like what we got with Cannibal Song. Um, and it's just, this really feels like they're having some fun. Um, and to, to good effect, I, I like the placement on the album. Because really, you know, we talked, you know, those first three songs just come at you and then Cannibal Song lets you down just a little bit, but then breathe and so what. And, then, and this is not an album that I listened to on vinyl. This is one I always had on a CD or, or listened to through, uh, you know, on streaming, whatever, electronically. So I never had that break where, you know, where you'd have to go flip flip the record over. So just those, right. you know, those first six songs, you know, other than that, that um, let down a little bit, not even let down, uh, calm down with, with track four, just go, 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 go. And then test seems to be, I think this is just really well placed. So this is a great place. Track seven, you know, almost done with the album. And it's silly is the first thing that comes to mind, but it's not the right word because that is not what this, this song is. Uh, what's your take on this one? Well, it's the first to feature a rapper, um, which is something that Revco, Revolting Cox would do. Um, uh, Subsequently, I think it not not so much on the Beer Steers and Queers album, but um, on the uh, Finger Licking Good album, um, they did a little bit of that. But yeah, this song features K Light on uh, vocals, um, so no no Al Jurgensen vocals, no Chris Conley um, vocal contributions. It's a really interesting track. Um, it doesn't stick out like a sore thumb though. Um, there's a certain uniformity despite the just the varying degrees of intensity on this album um it, it, it just still it, it's very much in keeping with the overall sound um so it's not jarring but it certainly is uh a different sort of uh, uh song to say the least and an interesting um i don't know it just stands in such stark contrast to so what as far as tempo and like intent i guess i don't know it's a it's a great song like you said, it's it's somehow in ways that I'm unable to articulate, just different than the than the rest of the record. Uh, but I think to good effect, and I it, it is the guitar is a little bit more wonky. There's more bends mm-hmm. in that way. It kind of reminds me of like the uh, the studio take of Stigmata, the original, where he <clears throat> seemed to be experimenting with like um, multi tracking guitars with like the sounds of like. Um, um, didgeridoos and uh, like a saxophone in reverse and just kind of like syncopating all these different elements to create like this gnarly kind of like uh, I don't know guitar it's almost uh, it almost doesn't sound like a guitar <laughs> but, but I think plays perfectly and, and is a lot of fun but what about uh, track 8 Faith Collapsing what do you think here uh, great song uh, the first uh, well, I mean, it's an instrumental. Uh, there are some background vocals, actually. I take that back. There's some chanting at the end. Um, uh, everyone from Bill Rieflin, Al Jurgensen, Chris Conley, they all contributed in the, in the chant of um, faith collapsing. Um, otherwise, it features, I think the song is really inspired by um, Fahrenheit 451 the book and it features samples from 1984 the movie so um very immersive um kind of going back to uh songs like destruction or uh a couple of the other um instrumentals on land of rape and honey kind of goes back to that a little bit 
but it's still anchored by Bill, uh, rather Paul Barker's bass, and uh, the drumming's very kind of tribal, um, more akin to like the kind of drumming we heard on uh, Breathe. So great, fantastic instrumental track. Just the the, the samples from 1984 are really stick out. That kind of counting down, like it's more like just dialogue heavy with the samples and stuff. Yeah, and it seems to get back into. I think it, it kind of resets after test without going to because it's uh, at this point. I think the album is, is obviously uh, on its way out. We're we're kind of we're winding yeah. down a little bit, and uh, and to go back once again, as you surprised me with this uh, thought that thieves wasn't originally on the album. That uh, the more I think about, because I wondered if they would have had to kind of resequence the the album uh, without it, and I think not really. I think even if you start with um, the uh, if you start with Burning Inside, and then just go, and then you the, the rest of the album just sort of flows this way. They think things are where they need to be, uh, including this track. So it uh, it resets a little bit from Tests, which does, like we said, sound a lot different from the rest of the record. Um, but he said, not, there's not a whole lot for me to hang on to with this one. Uh, it's a good tune, but not one that I, I think about. This is the first time when, I, when I'll look at a title, I'm like, which song is that again? And then, like, oh, right, 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 that one. Okay, because it's uh, just looking through, having uh, not listened to the album in a little bit, and then seeing that, it's like, I don't remember this one. Oh, that's because that's this one. Yeah, I get it. Uh, and that brings us down to the final song, Dream Song. And I'm just going to say, I don't like this song. Uh, it's weird because a lot of times this song, this album would end for me at Faith Collapsing, if if not even sure. Test, because I just never really cared for what was going on with this one. Almost weird hearing it preparing for this podcast because I don't remember it very well because I hardly ever listened to it. Uh, I think even when I originally put this album onto my iPod, I didn't include this song, and I rarely ever do that. I'll always just, well, I, just in case, you know. I was, I was always, I need the whole, I need the right. whole. But there's a every once in a while, I'm like, oh, I didn't even put, I didn't make an electronic version of that one. What do you think about Dream Song? Um, the one thing that's striking is the the kind of chanting you hear in the song, which is courtesy of the uh, Bulgarian state television female vocal choir, of all things, which they sampled. <laughs> um, and then the sort of female intonations in the song are courtesy of, I forget who, um, um, but they were actually done in studio. Um, it's, it's an interesting piece. Uh, it's, I wouldn't describe it as filler, uh, but it's not terribly engaging. It's, it's a good outro. I mean, if it, if it was just left, if it was tacked on, say, the end of, um, if maybe, like, the album was resequenced, then say it was, like, tacked on in the end of, like, a song, like, Breathe, or sequentially worked a little bit better, but um, good. And, and certainly still, you know, we're hearing Ministry um, falling back on <clears throat> the things they were doing um, with uh, Land of Rape and mm-hmm. Honey. An album that deployed guitars minimally, um, but to great effect, uh, but still had its fair share of um, interesting um, instrumental tracks, stuff like Hezbollah. I'm, I'm obviously referencing Land of Rape and Honey, but um, yeah, a, a little bit more, I guess, in line with that. I guess cinematic in a word. That's how I would describe, describe uh, Dream Song. Like soundscapes. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Soundscapes wouldn't wouldn't sound out of place on like a Dead Can Dance album or something. Maybe it's something on 480. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> that record label. 
All right. So that, uh, that's the end of the record for us. And uh, Max, do you have any uh, final thoughts about this one? Just phenomenal. I would, I would just encourage anyone to get it. Um, myself, you know, I, I kind of followed suit after this. Like I said, it snowballed, but it largely, the, the stuff that this album uh, introduced me to, so like in that respect, it's a gateway album, but it was more of kind of the same. And, and, and by that, I mean, like, you know, I got head deep into Al Jurgensen's other projects and kind of into, I guess, you know, music of a similar ilk. I think a good example would be Godflesh on a more sort of extreme end of industrial metal. There's definitely some good examples there. So the album was definitely like a, like a, like a springboard for me. It set me, uh, uh, I guess my tastes henceforth became more... Um, adventurous so i definitely dug on skinny puppy a little bit more i kind of understood rather the abrasive nature of skinny puppy was a bit more palatable after i listened to this like a yeah i would describe it as a gateway album at least for me it might still serve as such for some people i don't know i guess if you go into it with a fresh set of ears and don't know you know if like if i blindfolded somebody uh, and then, you know, forbid them from seeing like the track listing when the album came out, they might be hard pressed to actually identify it, you know, like a date, a specific date to it, which I think is part of the, uh, records charm and sort of enduring legacy. Uh, I think for me with the, the samples, the way the samples are deployed does set this in the, the late eighties, early nineties. I think that's the. That's the only thing that really keeps it there. Not that people don't use samples anymore. Obviously, they do. But I think the way, just the way that it's used on this album is the only thing that really dates it. As I mentioned earlier, I can I consider this part of my big three of uh, life-changing records that showed me that things could be heavy without being metal, which led me to breaking free of just being uh, a metal guy. Uh, I have a, a, a deep appreciation for this record because of that, uh, along with uh, The Real Thing and uh, Nothing Shocking. It was a, a fertile time when I think you could do a lot more in it. So I think those those three records showed you could you could do a lot of different things and still make it all work. And uh, it was it was a fun time. But of course, we everybody thinks that they're you know, between what you know sixteen and nineteen. Uh, that's when all music was the best, right? You know, <laughs> whenever you specifically were sixteen to nineteen. So that, that's when you tend to have the most sort of I guess musical epiphanies. At least in my case, I did. I mean, certainly around that time, um, you know, even at like 18 and, you know, the first time I ever heard like Aphex Twin, for instance, that was another major kind of like uh, kind of monumental moment. Just hearing something so foreign, so alien to my ears anyways, uh, set me off on a completely different path (laughs) as well. But as I get older, I just I embrace everything. So on any given day, you know, I'll be listening to ministry and then. I don't know, an hour later, Bill and Sebastian, and then I'll listen to Old Autopsy or something. So it's just, it's all over the place, man. And it's fun. It's nice. So uh, that was one of the things just, uh, I spent a lot of time in high school and uh, just, that was it. I only listened to heavy metal. That was, that was it. And then finding ways to, I couldn't just go from that to something else. I think I needed these gateways, like you said, you know, these things that showed that, yeah. things, you know, so making that transition from one of those bands to, you know, like you said, something like Bell and Sebastian or whatever. Um, I couldn't just go right from Metallica to that. So <laughs> it took me, sure, it took yeah. me a couple of steps. So, cause I know, I know some people who listen to metal and then just immediately stop listening to metal and started listening to pop music or whatever. 
but I wasn't able to to do that. So, uh, so like I said, this is a, a special record for me and uh, one that I've carried with me for uh, for a pretty long time. So, Max, thank you so very much for joining me and for uh, doing this particular record. It was fun uh, listening to this one again and uh, and talking about it. So. Uh, for everybody here at I Fucking Love This Record, I would like to say thank you. And uh, to everybody out there, uh, if you have not done so already, if you are listening to me on Spotify or on iTunes, if you could rate and review, apparently that helps other people find it. So I don't know if anybody has ever rated or reviewed any of my shows. So, hey, you could get there, you could be the first. Do it. And how cool would that be? So, Max, thanks for thanks for joining, and we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much.